Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Uh, those of you remaining can open your Bibles, please, to the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi. A pretty easy book to find, actually, if you know where the book of Matthew is, the first book in the New Testament. Just find Matthew and uh, flip back a few pages, and you'll get to Malachi, uh, the last book in the Old Testament. I wonder if uh, I were to ask you uh, what is the, the most important thing on your calendar this coming week, what you might say. What's the most important thing you've got on your agenda this week? Maybe you've got a job interview if you're looking for a job. Maybe you've got an exam if you're a student. Maybe a doctor's appointment, maybe a date. What's the most important thing? Would you be surprised if I told you that the most important thing on your agenda is what you're doing right now? that the most important thing that you'll do this week is gather together with God's people and worship the risen Savior. This is not only the most important thing on your schedule, this is the most important thing going on in the globe right now. This is the most important thing happening in all the earth. The gathering of the redeemed people of God coming together in fellowship to worship the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God's the most central and important preeminent being in the universe, right? Would anybody argue with that? The most important thing that would happen in our lives is that we would come to know him and have relationship with him and grow in our knowledge of him, and that through that process, the kingdom of God would expand throughout the globe. That's what's happening here as we gather, and that's why I say, This is the most important thing happening on the globe. It's not what Donald Trump is doing in the White House. It's not what is happening in Hollywood as the next blockbuster movie is being made, nor is it uh, what's happening in the NCAA March Madness Tournament. Those things are not the most important things going on. It's the gathered church of God gathered to worship him. And so with that in mind, I want to ask you a question as we proceed here today, and that is this. How important is the gathering of God's people in worship on Sunday mornings? How important is that to you? What kind of priority is that in your life? How much do you value what we're doing right now? That's the subject of this passage here that we're about to read in Malachi. We started this series on Malachi just last week, Malachi, a dialogue with God about spiritual boredom. Malachi is a prophet in the Old Testament, wrote about 430 years before the coming of Jesus, and one of the issues that Malachi had to deal with as he was preaching to Israel, the people of God, was their boredom, their complacency with God. They had just kind of checked out, and when they were coming to the temple to worship, they were just going through the motions, their hearts were not into it, and worship had become something insignificant and unimportant in their lives. And so Malachi comes on the scene, sent by God to bring forth a stinging rebuke and challenge 
to Israel for their boredom in worship. Now you might remember what I said, Malachi is written in a very distinct way. It's written in the form of six disputations, they're called. Disputation is kind of just a big word for kind of a Q&A dialogue between God and the people. And so last week when we started this sermon series, we saw the first question that the people asked God. And that question was, how God have you loved us? But it wasn't like necessarily an inquiry for information. As I said last week, there was a bit of a cynical tone to it. It was more like, oh yeah, God, you tell us you, you love us. Tell me how, show me. How really, God, have you loved us? That was the spiritual condition that the people were in. And now, today, we get a different question, and the question is this. It's, how have we despised you? That's the question that the people are asking God. How, God, have we despised you? And God's answer is, in your flat, uninspired, apathetic, listless attitude and approach to worship. That's how you've despised me. And so that's what we're going to read about here in Malachi 1. We're picking up in verse 6, and I'm going to read up through chapter 2, verse 9. A little bit of a lengthy passage here, but if you would please stand now for the reading of God's word. Malachi 1, 6 to 2, 9. A son honors his father... This is God speaking, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Answer, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts." But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Chapter 2. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, 
If you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he, hurt, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction." Uh, Lord, please instruct us by your word now, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, it's a long passage. We're not going to be able to uh, deal with every detail of that, but there's this one common theme here, and that is uh, the way that God's people come uh, to worship him. So I, I want to point out three, I think, major points uh, from this passage and the first is this, that should be pretty apparent, but it's this, that some worship is done poorly. In other words, it is possible to come and worship in a poor and impoverished way. It's possible to worship in a way that is displeasing to God. It is not the case that we can just worship however we want, just depending on what the culture seems to be saying or what happens to be working in other churches or what we happen to prefer. That's not the case. There is some worship that is done poorly. Now, you might recall what I said last week when I was telling you a little bit about the prophet and the office of the prophet and what a prophet was like, what Malachi was like. Do you remember that I said that a prophet typically brings a very unpopular message? Uh, that a prophet very often would say things that brought upon him rebuke and ridicule and estrangement. And man, that is certainly the case with this message today. And you'll get that uh, more and more as, as we go through this. But Malachi, uh, by the Spirit and grace of God, has the guts to come and bring the truth to the people of God. And so he begins here in verse 6 by um, quoting God, and God is asking some questions here. Chapter 1, verse 6, he says, you know, it's very common that a son honors a father and that a servant uh, honors a master, and he says, well, if I'm a father to you, he says, where, where's my honor? If I'm a father to you and you're my children, how come I'm not being honored? And so the people respond to that um, when God says that they have despised his name, and they say, well, how is this, how have we despised your name? In other words, they're saying, what have we done wrong? And so you see that the people here are kind of in the dark. They're kind of clueless about what the problem might be. And so God says, here's how you have despised my name. Here's how you've not honored me. In two ways, you have been worshiping me 
poorly. And the first way has to do with their actions, the actions of the people of God. So this, remember, is about written about 430 before the time of Jesus. Uh, this is uh, Israel who has been released from the exile and they're back home in Jerusalem and uh, the temple has been built so the normal worship activities and sacrifices had been taking place in the temple again so that was a regular, regular, regular that was going on. And what would happen is people would come to the temple and they would bring animals with them to offer up to God by way of sacrifice and the priests would then take those animals and then put them on the altar, um, presumably in accordance with the instructions that were given to them by the word of God. But what we see here in verse eight in particular is the animals that are being brought in an act of worship to God were like this, verse eight. Here's this God speaking. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? And then going down to verse 14, he repeats it. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock, and he vows it, brings it to the temple, and brings it up for worship, and yet he sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. He says, I'm a great king. I, the Lord of hosts is my name. I'm going to be feared among the nations. I, I'm a God that needs to be worshipped by the whole world. And here you come to me with these lame, sick, imperfect, defiled animals. Now, to, to really get a, 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 a hold of how serious this was and how the people and the priests should have known better, all we got to do is go back to the book of Leviticus where we're giving very clear instructions about the kind of offerings that should have been brought by the people. Here's what it says in Leviticus. If it, that is the sacrifice, the animal that's being brought, if it's to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind, disabled, mutilated, having a discharge or an itch or scabs, don't offer those to the Lord. Very clear. And yet apparently... This practice had developed. People were bringing all of these defective animals, and even worse, the priests are accepting them and taking them into the temple and offering them to God. And what God is saying here is, this is not acceptable. When you try to worship me in this way, in this kind of deficient, poor way, it is a way of despising my name. It is a way of showing hatred to your maker and your redeemer. And then he goes on here in verse 8. Isn't it interesting? He's kind of a little bit sarcastic here. He says, go ahead, present that lame offering to your governor. Will he accept that? In other words, he's saying, you're bringing a half-hearted, defiled worship to me, but you wouldn't do that to someone who you really wanted to impress. You wouldn't do that to someone who was really important to you. You wouldn't bring such a defiled offering to your first job interview. 
or on your first date, or if you were meeting your favorite movie star or rock star, you wouldn't come half-hearted. You wouldn't come 20 minutes late. You'd bring your best. To someone you want to impress, you bring your best. That's what he's saying in verse 8. You're not going to bring that to your governor. Now you're bringing it to God? You think God's going to accept that? Here's what Leon Morris says. Worship that costs us nothing is worth exactly what it costs. This is the principle here with the action of worship that is being taken place here. The principle is this. God doesn't want second best. God doesn't want your leftovers. God wants the best that you have to offer when you come to worship him. So in action, we see poor worship happening here. But not just in action, but we see in attitude as well. The people are worshiping God poorly. And for this, you look down to verse 13. And uh, after this description of the defiled offerings, um, it says, but you say, what a, what a weariness this is. So not only are the people and the priests offering all of these defiled worships, they're whining about it. They're complaining about it. Oh, this process of having to lay animals on the altar, this is so tedious, it's getting so old, God. I'm weary of worshiping you. What a bother this is, what an inconvenience it is, what a hassle this is. And I just wonder how many of us can tend to adopt that kind of attitude when it comes to Sunday morning worship. What a hassle. Wouldn't it be so much nicer if we could have just slept in today? How wearisome is it to have to come every single Sunday and do the same thing over and over again? And this attitude can be reflected in the way we behave, in the way we come and approach God, in our actions and also in our attitude, in our attitude of being repeatedly late to worship, in our attitude of coming with a grumbling and complaining spirit just ready to point out everything that's wrong, thinking you're doing God some kind of a favor by even showing up, and so you certainly have the right to judge everything that's going on. Or you come to worship maybe three Sundays in a row, and you're thinking to yourself, that's pretty good, I'm taking a Sunday off. Three in a row is pretty good. I might even take two Sundays off. Is that bringing your best? Is that bringing your best to worship? Did you bring your best today? Did you sleep last night well? Did, did you go to bed at a decent hour so that you could wake up and come and meet the living God and creator of the universe? Have you been daydreaming through this service so far? What's the attitude that you've brought? Did you pray for this service? Did you pray for your pastors? Did you pray for your soul? Did you pray for the congregation? Did you pray that God would get you ready? Did you bring your tithe check? Or did you come empty-handed? Did you bring your best today? That's what Malachi is saying here. This is what God desires of his people. 
not to come worshiping poorly. But he goes on and he says, you know what? There actually is a worship that's done properly. And so elsewhere in this passage, we see an example of that. Um, He lifts up this guy named Levi as an example of proper good worship. In chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. So you see in chapter 2, verse 4, uh, my covenant with Levi may stand, he says. So, so shall you know that I have sent this command to you so that my covenant with Levi will stand, says the Lord of hosts. So who is Levi? Levi is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And um, the descendants of Levi, the Levites, um, would be in charge of the sacrificial system. They were basically the priesthood in Israel, so the kind of religious leaders. They were the ones, again, responsible for taking these sacrifices, offering them up in the temple. They were the mediators, the intercessors between the people and God. And again, in verse 4, we have this kind of strange kind of phrase here, a covenant with Levi. I mean, we don't really hear about that much, do we? I mean, if you know about the Old Testament, you know about a covenant with Abraham, covenant with Noah, covenant with David. We hear about that, but now we've got the covenant with Levi. So what is that? Well, just to show you that Malachi is not, you know, totally out to lunch here, actually, we go back in the Old Testament and we see, remember what I said about a prophet, what a prophet is doing? He's calling people back to obedience to the law of God. That's his primary job. And so that's why we have to look back to the law of God to, to see what Malachi is referring to. And so <clears throat> here on Numbers 25, therefore say, behold, I give to him. Now that's speaking, not, not necessarily about Levi, but by, it's speaking about a Levite, a descendant of Levi who was in the priesthood. I give this, my covenant of peace to him, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood. So you see, it's, it's biblical. God did enter into a covenant with the priests. Now, again, last week we talked about the covenant, and the covenant's a very important theme throughout the whole Bible, but also in the book of Malachi. And the way I defined a covenant was it's, it's a relationship where a greater party, a sovereign party, enters into relationship with a lesser party, and stipulates certain mutual obligations that involve blessings and curses. So there's a relationship, but it's initiated by the one in charge, in this case God, and it takes to himself then the people and says, now there's mutual obligations here. When you obey me and fulfill the obligations of the covenant, you'll be blessed, but when you disobey, there are gonna be curses. And so again, Malachi is coming into this situation, another way to think of a prophet, is as a covenant enforcer. He's coming in a little bit like a repo agent, I guess, you know, comes to the house to say, I'm taking back, the the bank's taking back your house. I mean, it's kind of a negative taint on that that maybe is not entirely appropriate, but that's kind of what the prophet is doing. He's an enforcement agent for God coming and speaking to the people. And so what Malachi is doing here is reminding the people of the covenant of the priesthood, the covenant of Levi when God covenanted with the Levitical priesthood. And that covenant involved mutual obligations between God and the priesthood. God would bless the priest and equip 
the priests and save the priests and love the priests, but the priests had the responsibility then of conducting worship in the temple properly. And so that's why Malachi is bringing this up because he's saying Levi is an example of someone who did this well. He led us in proper worship. And so there are a few things here that we can see. What did Levi do well so that we can get a handle on how worship should properly happen? Well, first of all, we see there's um, an atmosphere of reverence. Look at verse five. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. That's, that's proper worship, where there is an attitude of reverence. There's an attitude of fear. Not, not, not fear in the sense that you're afraid that God is going to strike you down. Christians don't fear God in that way. But Christians come before God with an, with an appropriate kind of sense of just awe and reverence. A worship service is not supposed to be a place where you're entertained, friends. We're not trying here on Sunday mornings to put on a show for you. Uh, This is not a place where we're trying to be hip and cool and trendy. What we're hoping to establish by the Spirit of God is a sense of reverence. We are coming here before the God who threw every star into sky and named each one, the God who holds the universe together, the God in whose hands are our future and our lives. This God deserves to be worshiped. He deserves to be respected. He deserves the reverence and awe that is appropriate to his name. And this is what we see in Hebrews, New Testament passage. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And that's the way Levi was. Levi stood in awe of God. And that's an element of proper worship. But we also have repentance occurring. If you look at verse 6 in chapter 2. True instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many from iniquity. What Levi did apparently as a leader of worship is he called people to repent. He called out people on their sin. He wasn't afraid to offend people and step on toes. He said, what you're doing is wrong and evil and offensive to God, and you've got to repent of that. And that is something that should happen in a worship service. A worship service is not here just to make sure that, that, that you feel good, that you get a warm, fuzzy feeling inside, that, that you're affirmed just as you are. Proper worship calls people out of their sin and away from iniquity and evil and disobedience. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite pastors and preachers, said this about preaching, but it applies to the worship service uh, as a whole. He says, this is what preaching is meant to do. It addresses us in such a manner as to bring us under judgment, and we go out of the worship service saying, I can never go back and live just as I did before. I mean, that, that ought to be happening. That you ought to be leaving this place saying, I got some changes to make. I got some things to deal with. I got some people to talk to. In proper worship, we're called out of our iniquity. And then a third thing that we see here is instruction. 
uh, verse 7. The lips, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth for he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. And the passage goes on to talk about the negative effects of false instruction and partiality in instruction. Um, again, you know, what is worship about? It's, it's not about an emotional experience. It's not about having some kind of experience necessarily. It's not even really about being inspired. I mean, those things might happen, and that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But the, one of the primary purposes of proper worship is that you are instructed that the Word of God is explained and articulated to you in a way that you understand who God is and what he desires of you and who you are. It's in Hosea 4.6 where it says, my people are destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. How many people go astray in the church because they haven't been instructed? So, so these, I mean, there's many other things we could say about proper worship, but in this passage we have these three. Sense of reverence, calling to repentance and instruction from the word. Last thing. Some worship is done poorly. Some worship is done properly. All worship matters profoundly to God. And that's hopefully not hard for any of us to see in this passage. Just noticing some of the strong words that, that are used here. As I've started this sermon, verse 6, the one who worships poorly despises God. Um, verse 8, chapter 1, verse 8, God calls this poor worship evil. He says it twice. Is that not evil? Is that not evil? Verse 14, the one who brings the, the, the defiled offering, the one who's not bringing his best is called a cheat. A cheat. Why, why do you call him a cheat? Well, probably it's, it's because of this. You know, a, a defiled, sick, lame, blank, blind animal is not worth much. So it's very tempting for uh, the people to keep the healthy animals back for themselves. Why? So they can sell them, get some money. But here God is being cheated because the ones of inferior worth are being brought. But... In chapter 2, verse 3, I'm not going to overlook this passage. I'm not going to go past it. And it's one of the most unpleasant images in all of Scripture. Chapter 2, verse 3. The dung of your offerings. What Malachi is talking about is these people are bringing these animals for sacrifice, and a lot of them are being killed, but there still remains. There's excrement, there's feces in these animals. Some of it has probably been expelled. Some of it's still in the stomach and intestines of these animals. And just to show you how much worship matters to God, look what God says. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring, those who come after you, and I'm going to spread dung on your faces. The dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. I'm going to take the excrement, the pile of manure, and I'm going to smear it in your face priest that's what I think of your worship that's how much worship matters to me sometimes I think the way we talk is sometimes a little more sanitized than the way the Bible talks <laughs> Bible can be really earthy and you know I could say this in more salty language that would be I think entirely appropriate but I'm, I'm not going to do that 
but we see how much worship matters to God. One other example of this, how much worship matters to God, not quite as, as crude, but chapter 1, verse 10. He says, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors of this place, that you might not be able to kindle fire on my altar in vain. He says, oh, if there were just someone who would just... What God is saying is, I'd just rather the doors of this temple be shut down. Let's just shut down the place. That would be a whole lot better than having you people come in here and worship me the way you do, without reverence and without awe. Shut it down. It's like he's saying, I would just rather have every single church on the globe be closed down and be abandoned, put boards in the window and put a sign on there that says, go away. I'd rather have that than have a bunch of churches that worship me improperly. And God has a way of doing this, you know. He, he shuts down those who don't worship him well. I saw this article in the Washington Post. Liberal churches dying, conservative churches thriving. And a question was asked of the clergy, of the, the priests, the, the pastors, the leaders of these churches. Do you agree with the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ? Among those in the conservative churches, 93% said yes. Among those in the, excuse me, among those in the growing churches, not necessarily conservative churches, among those in the growing churches, 93% said yes. Among those in the declining churches, 56% said yes. Do you think there's a connection there? When the leaders of the people of God begin denying the central component of the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus, And God responds by shutting their doors. Praise God. That's a good thing. Better to have a small number of true churches than a large number of false churches. So let me just wind this up by this. Because at this point you might be asking, how in the world can anybody be fit to worship this God? (laughs) I don't want God smearing dung in my face when I come next Sunday. How can, I, how can I possibly enter into the presence of this God? One way, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how. Worship matters so much to God that he was willing to take upon himself the burden of opening wide the doors of heaven for you. And he did it like this. Hebrews 9 explains. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of cats, cats, of goats. (laughs) I think I put goats and calves together. (laughs) Cats. I don't think there was any command about sacrificing cats. The blood of goats and calves, but by means... Of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish? Without blemish. See, we have a perfect sacrifice in Jesus, one who is not defiled, one who is not blemished, one who is perfect. And who is Jesus? Jesus is God in the flesh. That's what Jesus, it's what God did on his own in the person of his son. He sacrificed himself. He gave up a perfect sacrifice and offering. He did it for us because we're so poor at it. So God did it in the giving of his son. 
And the result of that is now we, we can come. We can come without fear of condemnation, without fear of getting dung smeared in our faces, and with full confidence that we are going to be fully accepted by God. And the result of that should be not less awe, but more awe. Increased awe, increased gratitude, increased joy at the great privilege that it is to come here every Sunday and enter into the presence of such a great God. So let's pray. Uh, Father, we, we want to worship you well. and We acknowledge, Lord, we, 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 we don't worship you well, but Lord, our heart is that we want to do it well. Guard us from worshiping you poorly. Help us to worship you properly, God, because we know that all worship matters to you so profoundly. And so we praise you for saving us and opening wide the gates of heaven for us to come to you with confidence. Thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.